This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorlin. I hope your day is going better than everybody in Cornwall's who tried to send a rocket into space and it didn't work. In fact, we were talking about that on the show today. I was asking people to send in when they'd spent a long time working on something which had then gone horribly wrong. Lots of people just sent me pictures of Liz Truss, which I thought was a bit unkind. And Michael says, I can only imagine Virgin buys their rockets at the same shop I bought our New Year fireworks. Three out of five rockets failed to get off the ground, let alone get into orbit. Uh, so there we are. Maybe the answer is we could have put uh, Andrew Bridgen on the rocket and that would have solved two problems with one rocket. Anyway, coming up on today's episode of the podcast then, uh, Doctor Doctor, how much do I need to pay? Yesterday we heard from Ken Clark, former health secretary, he suggested you might have to pay, maybe well-off patients perhaps should pay to visit their GP. Clearly there is a big problem with uh, GPs, what's a big problem with the health service more generally, so we're really going to dig into that. Isabel Harman from The Spectator, casting a look back over the history of the NHS. We'll look at how health systems work around the world, and as Wes Street in the Shadow Health Secretary uh, suggests he might tear up the contract for GPs, we ask the Royal College of GPs uh, what that might actually mean. So that's coming up in just a moment. Before that though, as ever, it's Tuesday, so it must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, on Times Radio. Oh, it feels like it's been ages. It's been ages for, for one reason or another. But joining me in the studio is Danny Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. We've been here. It's you. I know. I was off for a couple here. of weeks. And then before that, anyway. But without you, it's it's merely the penultimate um, <laughs> uh, political portmanteau of political opinion. Uh, and beaming is David Ivanovich. Morning, David. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you too, Matt. I was just thinking, you know that thing about uh, that you've got on at the moment, how you kind of carefully build something up and it all goes wrong at the last moment. I was thinking how Danny and I had carefully cultivated reputations as very serious columnists and maybe, you know, some of the most reliable columnists and uh, 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 in, in Britain. And then you did that jingle. <laughs> um, I don't know how to break it to you, David, but that reputation might entirely be in your own head. <laughs> <laughs> I think the jingle is entirely in keeping with your long-standing reputations. Um, right, let's get let's get let's uh, get stuck in. Uh, we've got this poll that you guys have done for us. Uh, asking, I'm trying to sort of get to the bottom, sort of sentiment. How are people feeling about uh, the, the two parties? Because clearly. 
Labour do have a big lead in the polls. It doesn't really seem to be moving for the Tories. I mean, um, they've asked over several elections, how would you feel if the Conservatives or Labour Party won? Just 8% of people currently say they'd be delighted if the Tories won, having been more than a quarter ahead of the 27 and 2019 elections. Interestingly, uh, almost half now say they'd be dismayed if the Conservatives won, and 26% wouldn't mind. So it's not particularly good news uh, for the Conservatives. But for the on the Labour side... The proportion of people who say they'd be delighted if uh, Keir Starmer's Labour won, 22%. That's below uh, um, the enthusiasm for, for Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 and 2019. Um, and uh, 26% say they wouldn't mind, 34% say they'd be dismayed if Labour won. Um, Danny, I suppose it confirms what we sort of feel, which is that... People are really unhappy about the Tory party, but not very excited about the Labour party. Yes. Look, let's take the baseline of this. The Conservative party at the moment is losing very badly in the opinion polls, and this just confirms that. Uh, but let, let's, let's look at it with a slightly different eye. I guess, given how badly the Conservative party has done in the last year, both in reality and in public opinion, um, there, there might be some comfort that the that the rate of dismay to not being so concerned is um, is actually as good as it is. Yeah. Um, so the 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 um, you know the one thing that the I suppose that there are two things I'd take out of that poll um, if I were looking to. The first would be uh, that there are more people than the Conservative Party might um, uh, expect that are still sort of a bit indifferent about whether they get uh, elected and not actually absolutely furious. The second thing is I wonder how good people are at predicting their what their reaction would be if this were to happen in two or three years' time. A lot of people, they're, they're being asked a question that is entirely in their uh, sort of a sort of made up one of, of of a pollster. I mean, not saying it's not yeah. a, a good scientific question. It's a very well framed question, and exactly what a pollster should do. But I'm just saying that I'm not sure people can give proper answers to that question. So those would be the two bits of comfort. Um, but you can always take such comfort from polls. The broad lesson of it is the same as the broad lesson of the other, which is of the other polls, which is the Conservative Party could easily lose the next general election by a much bigger margin than people anticipate. And I think that's really quite a plausible outcome. The flip side, I suppose, David, is that the, the lack of enthusiasm about the fact that people, there were fewer people who said they'd be delighted if Keir Starmer won than said the same of Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 and 2019. I think we have to ask ourselves two questions about this in addition. The first is, what's this poll for? In other words, what is it you're seeking to understand from it with regard to the future? Do we seriously think that this kind of enthusiasm uh, drop from the 2017 election would make a difference to how people would vote in the next general election? And I don't think we can say that. Uh, the second thing is, and this is uh, more interesting to me, people remake the past uh, according to what has happened. So if we take the 1997 Blair victory, what everybody imagines is that there was an incredible surge of enthusiasm for Tony Blair in the period of the New Labour, in the period before the 1997 election. Everybody said, we'd love to have them in government. And that if you'd asked this question back then, unfortunately it only starts in 2017, you'd have got, you know, kind of enthusiasm, uh, stratospheric enthusiasm levels. That just wasn't true. Uh, and in fact, the overwhelming kind of narrative which was developed in the period before the almost overwhelming about Labour was that it was interested in focus groups, that it didn't believe anything, and that Tony Blair was an actor, was a cipher, uh, and all this. 
this kind of stuff. And you get people saying, well, I'm very kind of sceptical about him. He's all just a big grin and, and stuff like that. After the election, it was a completely different matter. It was reworked in people's minds for this moment of incredible, uh, you know, a, a new dawn has bro broken, has it not, etc. became what everybody thought they had thought before <laughs> the election. And I don't really think that was true. So uh, those are the kind of two, uh, two caveats that I would have. Should Labour necessarily be worried by a lack of enthusiasm? Well, it shouldn't be de delighted by it, but nor is a, an incredible level of enthusiasm for the party that you end up voting for an absolutely necessary ingredient of your victory. I'm not. I'm not sure that I think enthusiasm is a a very good political trait. I do want uh, because I I think I think optimism, uh, positive thinking, a lack of fatalism, those things are important. A degree of trust is important. Um, enthusiasm, I I think often reflects. Sometimes it reflects unreality, and sometimes it reflects a sort of zeal and dislike um, that I find actually rather a dangerous property. So I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure that I'd be. You know, I'm not sure that enthusiasm is down the uh, list of. But it could become. I mean, taking uh, into account what David just said about how it wasn't quite how it is now remembered in '90s. So that you do, if if there was a sort of general sense that normal people were looking forward to and talking about a Labour government enthusiastically. That that could create a sense of inevitability, which currently doesn't. I know what people were enthusiastic about on the morning after Tony Blair got elected. It wasn't Tony Blair; it was getting rid of the Conservatives. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and Tony Blair brought that about, and gradually speaking, associated himself with it over the next few months. But that morning, um, there was that feeling of getting rid of the Conservatives. I would say that um, it's quite widespread uh, that feeling now, but probably less intense. That would be my that would be my estimation. That the big the, the bigger problem for the Conservative Party is that in 1997 the economy wasn't doing as badly as it is now, and actually the economy is a big driver of elections. So you you could get a, a less uh, antipathetic yeah. um, electorate producing a worse result for the Conservative Party. However. Um, Zeal and enthusiasm sounds as though it's a property that you definitely want, but it's but it's you know has its yeah, has its bad points. Maybe the answer, David, is that either Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer should come out and start talking about how he how he prints Harry's book. <laughs> well, I was just thinking that, Dan, that Danny Finkelstein should actually now publish uh, a book entitled An Attack on Enthusiasm or uh, <laughs> Down with Enthusiasm uh, and so on. In fact, that'd make a really good column. And I would certainly read it as I do all Danny's columns. Um, uh, and so, and um, yeah, is this your attempt to segue into yes, the was, Harry question? I was tempted to, to seamlessly segue, but once again, you've shone a spotlight on the, on the you've taken the, <laughs> taken listeners behind the curtain. Yeah, I mean, well, the reason, the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it is not because I want um, uh, e either any of the three of us to give us our opinions about Harry's book. God alone knows you've got enough of that going on, etc. Uh, and people don't need it from us. But the thing that I was interested in thinking about this, and I wanted to ask Danny, because he's been, in a sense, closer to politicians themselves uh, than I have been, and their calculations, is that here's one group of people who hasn't said anything about the Harry book. Uh, and the Harry thing. And that has been our senior politicians. They have been absolutely notable by their 
total quietness about it. And what I wanted to ask Danny was this, why have they been so quiet? What is the calculation or the feeling that senior politicians have with regard to furoris about the royal family? Oh, that's good. Well, I mean, of course, at one point, um, you know, political contention between parties was about the royal family. And so usually you'd have the opposition party, which was the party of the Prince of Wales, opposing the governing party, which was the party of the king. Uh, and, that, and, and that was politics. Um, so I, I guess that um, if you're the Conservative Party, um, you don't want to, first of all, they've got enough on their hands and it's not sure they can really bring that much useful to, to this. But <laughs> secondly, they don't want to... Um, you know, destabilise the monarchy, point to things that are problematic. And if the monarchy itself has taken a stance of not replying to uh, the, the Duke of Sussex, I suppose the Prime Minister would think, as the monarch's chief advisor, they also probably shouldn't comment. So that would be one reason. And 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 in Labour's case, I, I suspect that Keir Starmer's genuine view of the uh, monarchy is that he thinks it's a bit of a silly um, institution that he's never been that much in favour of, um, but that he wouldn't wish to destabilise either his electoral chances or his time in office doing anything about. So it's the, it's a subject he just doesn't want to talk about particularly. He probably doesn't have much interest in it, um, you know, as a, as a, as a phenomenon. Uh, and insofar as he's ever had an interest in it, uh, and I'm not saying this is a political point, I think this is just an observation about his attitudes, he, he he's probably sort of quite against it, but can sort of... Can, that would obviously be completely counter to his political strategy. So for both parties, there really isn't anything in this. I think that would be the that would probably be the reason. Uh, th there is one other reason, which is it may be that people haven't really asked that much. Um, what are the instances on which you would be pressed? There's no shadow spokesman for the monarchy, uh, so <laughs> they don't have to say anything. It doesn't come up, you know, the Duke's book isn't going to come up in Parliament. Um, Keir, Starmer, Rishi, Keir Starmer hasn't given a big interview and Rishi Sunak... Um, will be the monarch's chief advisor who won't want to say anything. So that's the other reason is, you know, you need an occasion on which to be asked or to put this, and they haven't had them. Well, in fact, this morning, uh, Stig and on breakfast asked uh, Grant Shapps, the business secretary, on breakfast, if he'd be reading Prince Harry's book. Let's take a listen. I was not planning to, uh, as it so happens, or, or certainly not as an early priority, no. Right. OK. No. You're obviously a busy man. That's the business <laughs> so secretary. One or two other things to do, yes. <laughs> And that's basically the answer is going to get 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 them through uh, yeah. this week, and then probably not after that. And actually, I suppose more broadly, the book is salacious. There's lots of gossip in yeah. there. It's a soap opera. There's no great constitutional crisis. What he hasn't done is revealed what Prince Charles, then Prince Charles, now King Charles, said about Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson or or something like that. Yeah, but by the way, um. Just I know it's, I know it's completely diverting the point, but Grant Shapps quite good at giving interviews, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, he does actually usually know what you know how to give an how to, how to give an answer to get through what are usually pretty sticky, let's face it, situations. Yeah, um, yeah you, you see that a politician wouldn't want to get drawn in. What is the angle for him in yeah, that? Yeah. He's just going to get himself into trouble one way or the other. Um, and again, you know, there is this constitutional relationship. He is the king's um, minister, so he doesn't want to get. Um, pulled into that. I just, I do think it does say something about the book, which is that in the end, um, none of the things that he put in the book are really shake the foundation. You know, for all it's been said is that he's shaking the foundations of the monarchy. I'm not sure it, you know, does the fact that it Prince, the Prince family, but that's William, a different question. Yeah, 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 yeah tore yeah. his necklace. It's yeah. not going to bring down the monarchy. No.
No, it's not. It's not as if when um, uh, King King Charles pops his clogs, um, as eventually we all will do, anybody's going to turn around and say, well, we can't have William as king because of the dog bowl thing. Um, (laughs) It's just that's just not going to happen. So all this stuff about how it's a constitutional crisis, I agree with Danny, is for the birds. It was just that politicians quite often find it difficult to keep their um, uh, opinions out of big questions which are exercising the public. And I'm really struck, not just how senior politicians are keeping out of this one but how almost all of them yeah. are actually including I... the ones including the ones who are very kind of usually reliable for a kind of for, for a big comment about something that they know nothing about <laughs> it turns out they can do it <laughs> they can keep quiet <laughs> if they really apply themselves right let's turn our attention then to grant Charles's actual day job when he's uh, not trying to avoid questions about prince harry uh, government today introducing new legislation to parliament for minimum safety levels during industrial action david it does feel a bit like if in doubt the tories announce another crackdown on uh, on strikes yeah, well, that's exactly what it is. So uh, it, it, it's interesting. We, we, we the, the government hasn't actually seemed necessary to introduce these uh, measures since it came in 12 years ago. So the question is why now? And the answer why now is because there are a lot of strikes. The then answer is, well, why are there a lot of strikes? And can we uh, and can we settle them? Not how do we go about trying to penalise strikers in some kind of in some kind of a way, in a way that actually won't affect this latest uh, raft of strikes, but may conceivably affect a lot of strikes in the future. The one thing that I was really struck by in the political terms was when Grant Schatz was going around saying, um, well, we've got a guarantee. You can't have a situation whereby you can't get an ambulance if you're having a stroke or you can't get if you've broken bones. And you thought, what on earth do you think is happening now? What Would it be fair also, therefore, to introduce a service level guarantee that allowed you to sue the government if your ambulance didn't come on the same terms that you could force uh, an ambulance driver to work um, uh, in order to meet minimum service guarantees? This is it, it, it seems it seems both unlikely to work. In fact, it is unlikely to work because the way in which, as I understand, the legislation would work is that um, uh, people could would lose their employment uh, guarantees. And in the kind of fields that we're talking about, we have a shortage of people to do those jobs anyway. So it would seem very unlikely to be enforceable um and i don't know what danny's going to do with it when it comes to uh when it comes to the house of lords i just don't see it as any kind of answer to the current situation what it attempts to do is essentially put some kind of imaginary legal constraint in a situation which is essentially political so i have to admit that when this idea was first bruised in the conservative circles ken clark used to always call this that stupid idea of danny finkelstein's Um, (laughs) so i can't i can't walk away from it entirely um the uh basically the the the, the impulse behind it is that um, if you have a monopoly, uh, you are able to exploit it um, in lots of different ways. Uh, and in public services, that can often be through strike action. Um, and um, I don't... Ha- there is, however, as Ken Clark was correctly pointing out, a real problem. The problem that Ted Heath faced when he introduced trade union laws that the trade unions didn't want to abide by, which is they simply broke it and then you end up in a situation where you're trying you're trying to put people into jail. Um, it, it's very difficult to have a unilaterally determined um, compulsion to do something. Um, so uh, I think you have to buy out... Um, 
those parts of the public services that you decide you would you don't wish to allow to strike and i think without that it becomes very difficult um to implement and i don't think the public will be behind it or that it will be enforceable um so you um but i do think there is some value in trying to do that in a number of different my my argument would be that we've already done that in railways right we've already given them the wages that 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 um that kind of and, and that it is not unreasonable to insist uh that, that that there be some restriction on their monopoly power strike but i'm not sure that it's true in other services certainly not in ambulance driving so if you you do that and it could be by the way a solution for the government instead of giving in to the trade unions on their on their strike demand they could give them some money to buy off their right to future um, striking um, for this minimum service guarantee and solve both the problems that they're trying to solve at once. There's an interesting point that David's making about whether just what exactly is that minimum service? Because the service, when there isn't strikes, particularly well, the NHS, is so bad at the moment. You know, David, the, the government could end up being sued themselves. For David Rose a very good point. Well, I'm yeah, not yeah. against doing uh, yeah, against yeah. that, um, and. Um, People do put. So I favour a much more uh, direct relationship between the money being put into the National Health yeah. Service and the outputs. I'm in favour of some sort of hypothecation, which is very unorthodox. But I think it. I think that the minimum service guarantee could go with that. Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there, and of course you can read them in the Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're talking doctors. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. 
Yeah, we're talking doctors. £50 million pounds will be spent by, the he- spent by the health department to treat patients in temporary cabins in hospital car parks as the government pledges more cash to help the NHS survive the winter crisis. But questions as to the long-term sustainability of the NHS are yet to be answered. And one of the big ways that we all interact with the NHS, of course, is to try to get a GP appointment, which is what we're going to focus on today. Yesterday, the former health secretary, Ken Clark told me he believes for the first time in his life it may be time to end the principle every service in the NHS should be free at the point of delivery. We may have to look at some means of making the better off patients making some modest contribution uh, to their treatment, which we always have in the case of prescription charges. The Labour Party used to have tremendous rows about whether everybody should get free prescriptions or you should have prescription charges, and that's now taken for granted that we do pay, and we may have to look for other small payments. Uh, that was Ken Clark uh, speaking to me on the show yesterday, suggesting that maybe better off patients should pay to visit uh, their GP and other services. But in this half hour, we are going to hear from a GP, uh, including about uh, some plans that the Labour Party have laid out. We'll also find out what it's like around the world. But first, I'm joined in the studio by Isabel Hardman, assistant editor at The Spectator and author of an upcoming book on the future of the NHS called Fighting for Life. So, Isabel, how bad are things in the NHS first? And then we'll get on to possible solutions. Well, it's, it's a book on the history of the NHS. And I think the this is the worst period in the 75 years that the NHS has existed. It celebrates that anniversary in July of this year. And, you know, I've looked at the 80s when there were lots of crises and strikes, the 70s, the turn of the millennium when uh, New Labour were genuinely worried that public consent for the NHS was disappearing and nothing has come close to the crisis that we're seeing at the moment. So it is... It is really, really bad. And people say, you know, when is the health service going to fall over? Is it going to collapse? I I really think it has already collapsed. I think when you talk to medics who say that they are not even able to provide the minimum standard of care to people because there are no beds for them in their hospital, I think that is a system that has already melted. So whose fault is that? (laughs) I mean, I'm a political journalist, so I will blame the politicians. Um, And I think there's been a real abdication of responsibility over a number of years. And one of the things I find very frustrating about these debates about ripping it up and starting again with a new system that's fit for the 21st century is, yeah, I mean, we could do that. It would be a huge amount of upheaval and very hard work to make it work. And I'm not really sure we could trust the current government to to organise many things. I think a, a, a new health service would definitely be beyond its abilities but actually we're not doing the the difficult unpopular but important things that we know are necessary to make the system work now I mean you know you and I have both covered the various iterations of social care reform over the past few decades or or lack of lack of you know none of them have happened they have all fallen apart because politicians don't want to be honest with the public. And to her credit, Theresa May was the only one who has been honest with the public and she <laughs> lost her majority in the 2017 election drop, because of it. She had it before you turned, even before a single vote had been cast. Exactly. Uh, and what about, because people say, you know, you need radical reform and rethink, but every time there is, you know, the, the, the coalition tried it under Andrew Lansley, you know, endless rows about attempts to try and change the way the NHS worked. And it ended up probably, in a, the, the result of it was something that no one was really happy, happy with. Yeah. Nobody actually thought that Andrew Lansley wanted to make the NHS worse, but it's hard to argue that what they did made it better. And similarly, the Labour, you know, Labour government before them went through various reforms. Yeah, I mean, the Lansley reforms really were a mess, but they were also never fully implemented because the NHS 
worked out ways of working around them. So Simon Stevens, who was the, the chief of the NHS England at the time, basically had all these workarounds uh, that were there for a decade until it became obvious that they needed to be underpinned in legislation so otherwise the government might get sued. <laughs> um, but then you look back at, you know, basically every government since the Thatcher era, since the late 80s when Margaret Thatcher uh, brought in the internal market, has been obsessed with reorganising the NHS. I mean, it's it's been called the biggest train set in hi history because you can just fiddle with a bit here and fiddle with a bit there, and that's just irresistible to ministers who want to put their own sort of mark on the health service. This is all structural reform. It's not actually to do with workforce, to do with uh, drivers of demand, preventive medicine, or indeed social care, just to come back to, to that obsession. And what about, because we've got a sort of live experiment happening in the UK, because it's devolved. Every part of the mm. UK has a different, uh, well, different political party in charge of it. And it's in trouble everywhere. I was talking to it the is. Welsh Health Minister earlier on, who was b b telling me it was all sort of Margaret Thatcher's fault and Westminster's <laughs> fault and whatever. You know, so you've got the Conservatives in power in England, in, in the English Health Service. Wales have got Labour. Scotland have got the SNP. Northern Ireland don't really have anyone at the moment, but in theory it's Sinn Féin were they to form a, an assembly. And yet they're all in trouble. So it's yeah. not exclusively a nasty old Tories want to, want to drive the NHS off a cliff. No, it's absolutely not that. And it's worth pointing out that all health systems in the developed world are under unprecedented, in mm. most cases, pressure as well. Uh, I actually live in Scotland and uh, I found that the meltdown in the NHS up there where you know annual leaves being cancelled, Nicola Sturgeon has been talking about uh, trying to stop people from going into hospital... I found that fascinating because it, it is very hard for the SNP to deal with politically, given their normal shtick is, oh, these are the nasty Tories. Mm -hmm. And indeed, you're talking about charging, the Ken Clark proposition that you, you had on your show yesterday. I mean, that was discussed by NHS Scotland uh, before Christmas and the uh, confidential meeting minutes were leaked. And uh, the SNP just didn't know what to do because normally they're saying, oh, the nasty Tories are secretly thinking of charging people and then suddenly realise they're being accused of exactly yeah. are that. We, so, are we the baddies? Yeah, exactly. Like, are we the bad guys? Yeah. Well, talking about GPs and the temptation of everyone to want to reform everything, uh, let's, let's turn our attention to uh, Labour's shadow health secretary, Wes Streeting. He's got lots of ideas. Uh, he was speaking to Times Radio on Sunday morning about his plan for the NHS to directly employ GPs. Let's take a listen. What I've observed is that the trends of employment in general practice are changing. Um, new entrants to general practice do not find the GP partnership model where GPs effectively run as small businesses as attractive as previous generations. And when you look at the numbers, I think by 2026, directly salaried GPs employed by the NHS are, are, are going up to the majority, I think, around 2026. So I'm going to be consulting on whether that should just become the norm and whether over time, as GP partners retire, we should phase out that model altogether. It became clear on breakfast this morning that maybe Boy Streeting hadn't fully discussed this idea with his shadow cabinet colleagues called John Ashworth. Um, but put, putting that to one side, is this a good idea? Tearing up, again, I've covered governments of both colours uh, tearing up the GP contracts. Apparently that was going to solve mm, yeah. everything. I mean, there's a reason why GPs have the arrangements they do. Uh, and if they didn't have those arrangements, the health service wouldn't have been set up in the 1940s because Niall Bevan had the most almighty fight with them uh, to get them to consent to a national health service at all. And that sort of operational independence that they have was the price that he paid for, for getting it set up. Um, 
I mean, again, it's sort of from a kind of political point of view, quite funny. And Sajid Javid has proposed this before as well, because most people think that GPs are already fully in the NHS. Um, And so when Sajid Javid made this proposal, when he was Tory health secretary, doctors were getting very angry about Tories proposing to nationalise something, which I just, you know, (laughs) in my sad little world found hilarious. Um, But GPs and their independence does, it does cause problems, particularly for sort of control freak politicians. And when I talked to Alan Johnson, who was a health minister under Labour, I mean, he and lots of his uh, fellow former health ministers would say that they are the most difficult group to deal with. (laughs) And that really often the only way to get them to do something was to sort of threaten them. Um, So he was involved in these polyclinics, if you remember. remember Super surgeries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, they were very controversial. He didn't actually set up as many as he'd planned because whenever he threatened to set one up in an area, the local GP practice would suddenly realise it could do all the reforms that were necessary anyway. (laughs) So then it didn't happen. Yeah. Well, let's move on and we'll actually hear from uh, the Royal College of GPs in just a moment because, yes, uh, GPs is clearly where there are lots of problems. And Tory MPs are now uh, talking about it as well. Yesterday evening in the House of Commons, the Tory MP Sean Bailey asked the Health Secretary Steve Barclay about his concerns over patients being able to access their GP. And the most pressing issue at the moment for my constituents, particularly during the winter, has been access still to their GPs. And I'm sure members across the House will agree with me on that. So I welcome what my right honourable friend has said, particularly in respect of his use of technology, for example, to ensure people are seen. But fundamentally, people still want face to face appointments. Uh, I would say in part in that some patients uh, continuity care and face to face is extremely important but if you take the GP patient survey of last year it suggested that two-fifths of patients that was extremely important which suggests for three-fifths actually speed of access is often often younger patients is more pertinent. That was Steve Barclay in the comments yesterday. Let's bring in Steve Mole now. He's a practicing GP in South London and speaks for the Royal College of GPs. Morning Steve. Morning. Uh, Just on that question of people wanting face-to-face appointments, um, is that still the case? What's been your experience post-pandemic? Last summer when we talked about access to GPs, we were absolutely inundated with people saying they were struggling to get appointments. What's your assessment of where we are just in terms of people getting the access that they want? So two separate issues there. I think one is um, getting the appointment um, when they want it. um, And secondly, the face-to-face appointments. GPs never stopped doing uh, face-to-face appointments. And indeed, um, our surgery in South London, uh, we always had the system where uh, we had um, a telephone consultation first and then working out um, what the best uh, next steps would be. Uh, And actually, we're seeing as many, if not more, patients face-to-face now uh, than we did before the pandemic. With regards to access generally, uh, of course, demand has gone up massively. uh, And we know um, that GPs are actually seeing 18% 18% more patients uh, in November than they did three years ago before the pandemic. Um, the problem is it's gone up by 18%, but actually the number of GPs has actually gone down. And to put it in perspective, um, 18% rise in um, patients seen, um, that's roughly an extra GP uh, in your average size GP practice. So um, imagine you know, <laughs> the, the surgeries weren't quiet Um, pre-pandemic we were working uh, full strength full speed um, and now we've actually got a whole extra doctor's worth of work to do um, every week. Okay let's look at some of the proposed solutions I mean there were clearly lots of lots of issues at play 
Ken Clark, former health secretary, told me on the show yesterday that he thought that that one way of solving some of the problems that the health service is facing right now is that better off patients should pay a small fee beyond what they already do in England, at least for for prescriptions and so on. That actually maybe you did have to pay. To, uh, better off patients should pay to go and see their GP. What do you think about that idea? Yes. So generally, as doctors, um, we, we don't feel that um, charging for GP appointments is going to help ease pressure on GP services. I think if you are uh, very well off and you're being charged a, a certain amount of money and, and it, you know, actually, when, when you get into the detail, how much would that be? Would that actually mean that they would seek help elsewhere? The less well off. What are we saying? How are we reducing the demand somehow? We're reducing it by somehow saying some people who are well off. Um, might not come because actually there's a, a fee in place. Um, that that doesn't seem to make good sense. Uh, we worry as well as that um, patients where there is uh, even a small deterrent uh, may put off uh, presenting uh, with potentially um, you know um, serious conditions. Okay, that's uh, Ken Clark, former health secretary. Let's look at as the polls currently suggest. The, the future health secretary, Wes Streeting, has been a busy man uh, in recent yes. days. He was on uh, Times Radio at the weekend. He gave an interview uh, to the Times as well. In the interview to the Times, he says he wants to completely rethink uh, GPs. They should no longer be the sole gatekeeper uh, of access to the NHS. And then goes on to say the reason that GPs uh, oppose or get anxieties, he says, about the idea of politicians sending patients to pharmacies and so on instead of going to their GPs, is that GPs are thinking about their own income and their own activity. Vaccinations are money for old rope, he told the Times, and a good money spinner. What do you make of those comments? Um, the gatekeeper role, um, I, I would move a little bit away from that. I would say that, that, that more importantly than the sort of navigator role uh, of the GP, navigating uh, and helping patients through um, the NHS to make sure that they get um, the correct treatment. Um, GPs can do that because... Um, they have um, the patient's record in front of them. Um, ideally, they know the patient so that they can have a more holistic view of the patient um, and be thinking not just of the one specific complaint that they're coming with. So, you know, if they're coming in with a cough, um, you know, a cough doesn't automatically um, equal uh, a chest problem. It could actually be acid reflux or some other issue. Uh, and actually um, having the medical record, knowing the patient uh, allows them uh, to be to give a more personalised approach to that one patient uh, rather than a sort of pathway conveyor belt um, type approach. The other thing that um, Wes Streeton was talking about was he, he wanted to phase out the whole system of GP partners altogether and look at salaried GPs. So instead of GPs being essentially sort of small businesses, self-employed small businesses, mm -hmm. uh, working for the NHS. Now, I, I've been covering politics long enough to remember when Labour overhauled GP contracts. There was a huge row about that. Then uh, the coalition, Andrew Lansley went through all of this and there was, a, there was a big row about that as well. Are you prepared for a big row with a future Labour government on tearing up the GP contract? Well, um, I guess I should say that I'm a partner myself. I've been a GP partner for um, 20, over 22 years. Um, the, the partnership model of general practice uh, delivers exceptional benefits for the NHS. Um, it allows GP teams to be innovative um, and tailor-made um, services to their local patient population. Uh, and, you know, we think it does uh, provide extremely good value for the NHS. Um, we're not um, averse to other models of general practice working alongside um, the partnership model um, if they work well for patients. Uh, but there does need to be a very good reason to abandon it. 
um, due to the benefits to patients. Um, you say and if there isn't a really good reason, we've seen in the past GPs uh, going on strike and uh, putting up a pretty tough fight against changes to contracts. Is that something that you could envisage if, if West Streeting pursues this? Could we see GPs downing tools in, in protests under a Labour government? I mean, obviously clearly Labour have made a lot of fuss about strikes under under the Conservatives. It sounds like there could be a big fight coming down the, the road. Were, were West Streeting to pursue this? The Royal College of GPs is not the trade union, that's um, the BMA, and it would be for the BMA uh, to comment on that. What, what I would say is that um, GP retention um, certainly is a professional issue for us, and we know um, the average age of retirement for GPs is around 57. Uh, now, um, I'm 55, um, and actually, you know, if they're going to totally reorganise uh, general practice, um, is that going to make me likely to want to retire earlier or later? Is that going to retain our most experienced um, GPs in the system? Or is that going to simply lose them uh, right at the moment when we've got the highest demand uh, that the NHS has ever seen? Um, so I would look at it from a, um, a retention and a recruitment point of view. We've got you know massive problem here of um, the um, GPs in their later career um, retiring earlier and earlier due to the risk of burnout or simply burning out. So if your your fear is if Wes Street goes down this road, that actually we'll end up with even fewer GPs? I'd be very surprised if we end up with more. Most jobs in the US come with health insurance. And what that really means is that your health care cover from where you're going to go and see a family doctor, as they call GPs here, or for something more... Um, more serious coverage differs very much depending on your employer and how generous they're being with the the package so if you fall ill you call and uh, your family doctor and book an appointment like you would do in the uk but you would also call your insurance to check that they cover whatever it is you're going for now a family an appointment to the gp or a family doctor and will be covered i think in pretty much all cases it gets more delicate when you need treatment subsequently so you know, if you need a, I don't know, a hip replacement, some insurance will cover it, others won't cover it, and that depends entirely on the policy. But also, those that do cover it, uh, the deductible, as they say here, or the excess, uh, will depend on, on how generous your uh, your policy is. Right, uh, that's uh, Alison Dorbin in Washington. Let's get back on the plane now. We're heading to France, where Charles Bevan is in Paris. Unlike the UK, some money does change hands when you visit your doctor in France. The principle of the system is that the health service, la sécurité sociale, refunds most, but not always, all of the cost. At the moment, an appointment with the GP costs 25 euros. You make the payment on the spot and the system reimburses 70% of it. The same applies when you visit a specialist, which you can do in France without being referred by a general practitioner. There are many specialists who charge higher than the national health rates, but you're still only reimbursed at the level of the national health. To cope with this, almost all French people, 95% of them in fact, pay for top-up health insurance. These so-called mutuelle insurance schemes cost on average about 90 to 100 euros a month. They reimburse you for much of the difference in the charges. The quality of hospital care is high in France and the wait for treatment is nothing like as long as in the UK. But the French system comes at a price. It's financed from payroll taxes paid by both workers and their employers and they're amongst the highest in Europe, far higher than the UK's national insurance contributions. Charles Bevan in Paris there. Right, let's uh, head to Asia now. Uh, we're off to India. It's Amrit Dillon, who's our correspondent there. If you are well off in India, 
you go and see a GP for a minor ailment. If you're poor, you can also go to a GP, but you probably won't have the 20 or 30 pounds it will cost to consult someone. So when they fall sick, they end up having to go to the state-run hospitals, which are free in terms of consulting a doctor, but not free in terms of medication and tests. It means losing a whole day often because there'll be lots of people there and very long queues. In recent years, the government has tried to help the poor somewhat by launching a new medical insurance scheme whereby those who are very, very poor can get medical cover of about £5,000 in a year. And this means that they can get treated not just at the state-run hospital, which is in any case free, they can go to a private hospital and ask for their surgery or treatment to be done there. And it will have to be done there, and the government will then reimburse the costs to the hospital. That's a picture in India then. Uh, we're not taking the most logical route. We're now going from in we're now, let's go now from India to Taiwan. Uh, this is Louise Watt, the Times correspondent uh, there. Taiwan has a national health insurance system, and everyone has to be enrolled in it. You do pay a fee each month, and then when you go and see a doctor or dentist, you also pay a fee although it is subsidised. But you can choose where you go, whether it's a private clinic on your doorstep or a doctor at one of the top hospitals. You don't have to get referred to a specialist. You can directly make an appointment with them and it might cost about £6 for the consultation and then there will be co-payments for any tests or medicine on top of that. In hospitals, you're usually given an approximate time in the morning or afternoon, and consultants might get to see as many as 60 people within one of their sessions. In smaller private clinics, you can usually just turn up and wait 10 or 20 minutes till a doctor is free to see you. So that's a picture in Taiwan then. And finally, let's head to Australia. Bernard Lagan is in Sydney for us. The average cost of an appointment with a GP in Australia is around... $50, that's about £28, while the average cost of a specialist appointment is around $130, that's £74. But many people do not have to pay. Around 80% of general practices simply bill their fees to the National Health Fund Medicare rather than bill the patient directly. It is a process known in Australia as bulk billing. However, not all services are bulk billed and neither do all doctors do bulk billing. If you choose to see a doctor in this category, they may charge you what is known as an out-of-pocket fee. That is where the patient pays fees, not catered for by Medicare cover. The other important part of Medicare is the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. The PBS makes many prescription medicines cheaper. Medicare is funded through a mix of general revenue and the Medicare levy. The Medicare levy is currently set at 1.5% of taxable income with an additional surcharge of 1% for high-income earners. Many Australians, about 45% in fact, do take out private health insurance. That means that they can be treated outside the public health hospital system. The great the value of it is, of course, is that they avoid public hospital waiting lists for procedures. Right, that's enough uh, uh, flying around the world. Bernard Lagan there in uh, Sydney. I mean, all, all of that is a reminder that, you know, much as we might treat the NHS as a sort of national religion and is, is unimprovable compared to everyone around the world, um, there are loads of different systems around the world, some working better than others, some actually some of the ideas that politicians are talking about now. Looking ahead then to the next general election, how significant do you think health policy is going to be? And will anyone crack it? 
I mean, I doubt they'll crack it, but uh, I think it is going to be one of the, the dominating themes of the next election, not least because most voters are either going to be on or know someone who's on an elective care waiting list and may have had really bad experiences in emergency care as well. So it's going to be very personal and visceral for, for people. And, and, you know, that's something that Conservative MPs are, are very worried about at the moment. Yesterday you had uh, Sir Edward Lee in the House of Commons complaining that the Tories don't have a long-term plan for, for the health service, but Labour do, which was uh, an unusual contribution from him, I have to say. Uh, just finally, though, the book Fighter for Life, when's it out? It's out in June. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information